Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 57. Thank you for letting me take a week off last week. I was at a healing, inner healing, spiritual counseling, neuroscience seminar, uh, marrying a bunch of these different disciplines together, and it was fascinating. I learned so much. I am possibly going to be trained as a counselor in this particular modality, but uh, anyway, it was really, really wonderful, and there will be fruit of that for you at some point in the future. Don't worry, don't worry. But this week on the podcast is my new friend, Gina Thomas. We've been interacting on Twitter for a little while, and it's been it was very special to have a conversation with her and to sh- get to share with all of you guys her remarkable uh, wisdom and journey. So Gina has got a brand new book that's just about to release called Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. Gina is a mom, a foster mom, formerly a missionary. She's written another book on uh, doing missions work in, in a sustainable manner. And she ended up in the middle of this uh, border crisis about a year and a half ago. And so she is just a really kind and gentle and passionate soul. Uh, So I'm going to get out of the way and you're going to hear uh, our conversation. And make sure you check the show notes for links to buy her book and learn more about her and go and follow her on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere. You will not regret it. Here we go. So I am just really pumped again, as I mentioned before, that we get to have this conversation. It's super fun. Me too. (laughs) Thanks for making the time, Gina. How are you like deep in book launch world or like what's your current reality? Uh, A little bit. I'm trying to, trying to stay afloat with all the, with all the stuff right now. It's, um, we're in the, the final month, so feels like things are getting tight and deadlines are coming on me sooner than I can uh than I want them to maybe um but at the same time I'm just ready I'm like let's let's do this let's move on you know like yes. let's get past this so. let's get this baby out of the birth canal yes <laughs> yeah she's been in there for far too long I'm done with it so yeah so I I'm I'm I was really touched uh by your by oh. your story um oh. I finished it, I think, two or three days ago. And man, what a timely and devastating and wild journey that your whole family got to go on with this Honduran family. With uh, Yeah, I'm kind of like with Lupe's family. I'm kind of like, where would you begin if you were telling... A complete stranger the story if someone's like i don't know gina thomas <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh well that's the thing about it it's so complicated right it's like it's you know in the introduction i talk about is this a story about immigration is it a, is this a story about foster care is it a story about being a christian like what the heck is this a story about mm. um and um yeah it's just it's a lot of different things intertwined and really the wholeness of what humanity is um, and what it means to be a human who believes in Christ and how that affects every aspect of our life, um, whether we want it to or not. (laughs) Right. Yes. Whether we want it to or not. And let me say that I think you pulled those, those elements together very, very well in, in your introduction, as you said, you acknowledged, you know, what kind of story is this, but at no point throughout 
the work? Did I feel like, oh, it's totally changed tone or mm. now, now I'm down this weird rabbit trail. It, mm. Everything was, was very, very sequential and emotionally synchronized maybe is the best way to put it. Like, you know, I mean, for those of you who have absolutely no grid, Gina and her family ended up fostering a girl from Honduras who had been separated from her family at the border. So all the stuff that you hear about in the news, whatever you think about every aspect of it, Gina has lived a significant reality of it and has touch points with a bunch of it. And so as you're reading the story, she's unpacking, uh, here's, here's why this is a thing. And here's why this is a thing. And now let's talk about bananas and the, the <laughs> capitalist banana industry. And let's talk about and everything that you unwrapped and, and how it works with customs and immigration. And, and then the, the cultural differences. Yeah, it was I, I, I felt that you had pulled me along for the ride and equipped me at every stage to understand what I needed to understand to get the the heft to the emotional weight, not just of the story, but of, of what you just said, of what it means to be Christ oh. in this world, especially living in, you know, for, for you living in what many would say the most powerful nation on earth, that it still exerts this major, essentially empirical, colonial kind of influence on the nations around it. Uh, yeah. Christians living in empire is a, yeah. is a thing that has to be wrestled with as, as you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Those are very kind words. Oh, you're very welcome. I, yeah. I, I just feel thankful. So I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so blessed. Okay. So roll, roll, roll us back. You've been to sure. South America. You've had some of that lived reality, just traveling around. And so it's not totally out of the blue that you would end up with a Honduran girl. Right. So when I was in college, I took a semester off of college and I lived in Nicaragua. That's not even, I don't think that even shows up in the book. Um, and then after that, uh, after college, I lived in Honduras for a year and a half. Um, after we were married, we moved to Mexico and we were missionaries there for about four and a half years. So, um, so Latin America has had a huge influence on who I am as a, as a person. Um, it's also had a big influence on my perspective of the United States, uh, after coming back, um, I've been through reverse culture shock a couple of times and it has been heavy and, uh, um, challenging. And, um, yeah, when you, uh, for me, it's always harder reverse culture shock than culture shock, because when you return to the place that you think you knew and you've have this lived experience, um, of a different culture and a different life, uh, you never fully can come home. And that's something that I most, um, what we call expats. I don't know if I like that term anymore. Um, <laughs> if you read the book, you might know a little bit more why, but, um, most people who have lived, uh, in a different context, um, have told me the same thing. And so it's hard to find normal again. Um, and in some ways I don't know that you ever do. Yeah. No, I'm with you completely. I was born in New Zealand okay. to missionary parents, traveled okay. all around the South Pacific, lived in France and Switzerland for two years as a child, wow. returned to New Zealand. My English was behind. I didn't fit in. I was like culturally French. Yeah. Uh, then we moved to Canada when I was 13. And two years after getting married, my wife and I moved to Finland. 
had our wow. kids there and then returned to Canada. So wow. the rev- which is you know where we've called home. So the reverse yeah. culture shock thing, I feel you big time. Everyone's <laughs> like, oh, isn't it great to be back in Canada? I'm like, I hate Canada. Canada sucks. <laughs> you know, un- until it doesn't suck anymore. Right. You know. Right. I think right. I said to somebody recently. I think it's been like six years since we came back from Finland, and I think I've just about forgiven God for for inviting <laughs> us to move back. <laughs> so I feel you. That's good. That's important work. Forgiving God. <laughs> 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 still working on that one i'll let you know how that goes um but yeah so you learned yeah, spanish yeah i learned spanish um Much i actually minored in spanish your italian family <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> um i actually took i studied spanish in college um and yeah just just have really loved the language um for a long time yeah, yeah last yeah. night i was at a, a neighbor's house um they're they're from Mexico and so I got a lot of Spanish practice and I was like oh my goodness I'm so rusty this is ridiculous yeah. <laughs> but yeah I miss speaking it as often as we did when we lived in Mexico so you mentioned the expat terminology just there and tried to avoid it but I'm going to come back to it because <laughs> I had never thought about that until mm. you exposed it in the book and you know, for those of you who haven't lived abroad, maybe you just have never have the chance to think about this, but there are times where we use the word immigrant and times where we mm-hmm. use the word expat. Yeah. And it's really peculiar. Uh, can you um, unpack that a little bit? And then and then I'll, I'll share where I've kind of been like, oh, man, because I've been processing my own experience since you brought it up. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so a lot of people use the term expat. Um, that term is used typically for middle class, upper class immigrants, um, whereas we use the term immigrant typically for lower um, lower income people. And um, the phrase, uh, some people define expat as someone who lives in another country for um, an open-ended amount of time, <clears throat> but sometimes it's used... Um, for just a, a small time frame, so it's, it depends on who you talk to and, and how they define it. Um, whereas immigrant typically is uh, also an you know an extended amount of time. And so, you know, I think about my Italian family; they were immigrants to the United States, and that was kind of that was an okay term in their context. Um, but whenever I've lived over somewhere else, I've always called myself an expat, um, <clears throat> and that uh, that term comes from like. The, the actual word expats is, is something about like basically like being abolished from a nation. Right. And right. so there's this negative connotation that we've kind of turned into this positive, like almost like this yuppie um, totally. word. Right. Um, so it's, it's this cool thing to do to be an expat, but it's not cool to be an immigrant. Um, and I think that there's some, there's some big uh, revelations there within how we use the language, um, who we call ourselves and what, class of people um are termed certain words yeah i think that was the first big aha moment for me in in your book uh separated by the border let's get that into this so many times because uh, <laughs> okay like you're totally right the, the quintessential expat community is a bunch of 50 year old white people living in <laughs> hong kong right or yeah. like and they're and they're essentially british and americans hanging out you know I wish those who are listening right now could see your body language and how you're like moving your neck around, like I'm too cool. 
Yes. As a British descended white person, I you know I, I feel I feel I have the right to make that judgment about my people. Absolutely. Um, and having traveled extensively ar- around Asia as well, uh, you know, you see these communities, and, and I've visited like essentially Westerner expat communities in Singapore, yeah. in Japan. Mm-hmm. And there's this really particular kind of thing. Uh, so when when my family moved to Canada in the in the 90s, I called myself an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And in, in my mind, it was a permanent one-way move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were assimilating. We were becoming Canadians. And so the language to me worked it made perfect sense immigrant i was also like a teenager and probably didn't even know the word expat at the time sure but i was like yes i'm an immigrant now when we moved to finland i called myself an expat mm-hmm. now when when we moved we pretty much moved to to spend two years at university for my wife but very quickly we fell in we fell in love with the country and essentially planned to be there permanently mm-hmm. so and we began to culturally assimilate and yet the Uh word immigrant never felt like it applied to me and yet i would look around and there were you know say refugees uh having arrived from from iran iraq syria afghanistan and they were immigrants Uh you know and we would have and so okay so maybe it's a cultural community fine so i would have a community of all my english-speaking north american friends and english friends and we would do thanksgiving somewhere between canadian thanksgiving the proper thanksgiving and american thanksgiving the wrong thanksgiving (laughs) and we would you know we would have a turkey would find a turkey which is insanely expensive in finland and and would do all these expat things together yep but if the afghani immigrants were doing that together they had just as much right to call themselves an expat community as as I did. Is it because their skin is brown? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I had never actually been forced to give thought to that until you exposed that language issue. And like you said, it's essentially the language of, of white, powerful people who get to dictate yeah. who's an expat and who's an immigrant. Yeah, and there's a there's definitely an assimilation component to that too, where it feels like when you're an expat, you don't necessarily have to assimilate. Right. Um, but yeah. when you're an immigrant, if you don't assimilate, something's wrong with you is how yeah. we look at it. It feels like, like, why are you still holding on to that cultural heritage or why are you still speaking that language in your home? Like, that's not okay. You're in America now. Speak English, you know, like those kinds of things that, that kind of all are underneath that, that language. Yeah. Obviously, we know language is powerful, and we, you know, we talk about this in a whole bunch of different contexts. But the you also brought up the the use of the word alien, mm-hmm. uh, and that really struck a chord with me. Um, remind me, there's a, there's an act, right? There's a there's a law. What, what is what is it? Yeah, there's. Um, I think it's the the Naturalization Alien Act or something like that. I can't remember, but that language has been used in like legal terms in the United States for decades. Um, and it continues to be used. Um, and even unaccompanied minors, the actual term is UAC, which is unaccompanied alien child. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, so like, yeah. I'll, How easy is it to dehumanize <laughs> other people when we don't even think they're from this planet? I, I, I honestly had never thought of it. And I would like to think of myself like there's like this super woke guy. And <laughs> I'm just like, Lord Jesus, even, yeah, like how, like you said, how dehumanizing, it's the word we use for aliens, 
from outer mm-hmm. space. Yeah. Okay. So there's so right. much there's so much wrong. Mile high view. Then what's what's happening at the border, and how did then you suddenly this Spanish speaking American family end up being so vital? So at the time, um, my husband and I were we were foster parents um, in a county in North Carolina, and uh, a family tried to cross the border around October November of 2017. The zero tolerance policy was not public until April of 2018, and it went public until June. So it was April to June of 2018. Um, But we're now hearing reports that say that it was probably already happening from June of 2017. Mm -hmm. So June 2017 till June 2018. um, And even now, there's some stuff still happening with with parents being separated from their children. So um, having said that, um, in February of 2018, we got a phone call, um, asking if we could take in, uh, just for the weekend, a girl who only spoke Spanish and our social workers knew that we, we both spoke Spanish having lived in Mexico. And so we said yes to the weekend. Um, but the weekend then turned into, um, a four month thing, um, of trying to figure out how, first of all, what her actual story was. Cause in a, like a lot of DSS cases, um, you don't always get the right story. The details are are messed up, mixed up. And in this particular case, they were extra mixed up because we were dealing with two different federal agencies as well as the state um, DSS. And so it took a little while to figure out what was actually going on, took a little while to make contact with um, with Lupe, with Julia's mother. And uh, once we finally got the story straight, then we were able to kind of figure out the path to take. Um, but it was a very strange and weird case because uh, most of the time in DSS, well, in, in every case, you have to prove to the judge that the home that the child returns to is safe and appropriate. Mm. And in this case, um, and that's always done through a home study that um, the court orders. Well, in this case, um, no one from North Carolina um, could go to Honduras and do this home study. So we had to get the consulate involved and have them do the home study um, and then have the judge sign off on the reunification from there. So that that sign off came in May and then it took another month to get the right papers from the consulate for um, for Julia to be able to travel back to Honduras because she had come through without papers and needed to return with some kind of papers uh, to be able to get through. So. This, I I think that was the last kind of detail for me that utterly just boggled my mind. Like we're going through, uh, we're almost almost approved for for foster work ourselves. So mm-hmm. we you know we've been learning a lot about about all that process and and so I understand that when Children's Aid has been called into a family where a child has got to be separated from their parents because it's not safe for the child to be right that for that child to, to be returned home, the factors need to improve. I, I right. That's a very straightforward concept. Yep. But this is not that this is a child who's been separated from their parents by customs and immigration taken Mm -hmm. into America while the parents have been essentially sent home. Mm -hmm. And now to return that child home, a quality control check has got to be done on the family. Right. I'm, I, I just like, I, I, I was speechless re- reading yeah. as, as I began to, as you know, you're laying out the story and I start to connect the dots and I realize what you're about to say. I usually don't swear on the podcast. So I'm going to try not to, but I'm just like, <laughs> Lord Jesus. Yeah. This is so 
Yeah. Where, where do you even start to yeah. use adjectives? <laughs> um, yeah, usually not on a podcast, but definitely <laughs> lots of adjectives. Um, yeah, it's just really, it's really, um, I think, eye-opening into the system and how broken the system is. Because for the fact of, like, for a judge in a small county in North Carolina to be able to have the power to say this child can return or can't return when the child is from another country seems just completely mad. Um, the We did try to figure out if there was another way to get around that. Um, but because she was in DSS custody, because she was under state custody, um, it wasn't an immigration law issue. It was a child custody issue. Um, and in order for that to, to work, uh, according to the people that we talked to, we talked to, um, a lawyer and then of course all the social workers, because they were trying to figure it out too. They had never had this happen before. So it was, it was new for all of us. And we were all trying to figure out how, how do we get this girl home and why do we have to take two more months away from her time with her parent, her family, um, to figure out all this red tape to get her home. Um, but thankfully I had, we had just a great team of social workers on our, on our side that were doing everything they knew to do. And, um, and then the, the consulate was working really closely with us as well, which was, which was super helpful. But on top of that, what I also want to bring up in this particular situation is that there will be, I know that there will be, and there have been people who have told me that, um, if you know what, the context is like in Honduras. If things are bad enough for her mom to have to try to come here, then how could you possibly let that child go back to her home in Honduras? You're the bad person. Why are you doing this? And I'll take that stuff, but I'm not going to pick it up because for me as a, as a white American woman to say that I have a better life and therefore I have the right to keep this child is so completely in my brain, so completely puffed up and arrogant to think that I have any kind of right to this child who's not mine. And sadly, there's a lot of these kinds of situations that happen. And the justification is, well, we don't want to send them back to that context. Yeah. Is there a more pure essence of the colonial mind? You know, right? the colonizer mentality where, right. you know, we can save them by bringing them here, but just the children yeah. because the adults are worthless right. freeloaders. Thank you for saying this. I hate that. Like we have to, we have to have the whole family in mind. If we are Christians, God did not just come for the children. He no, came exactly. for every human being. No. How can we possibly elevate the child over the family? I'm really thankful that there's this like very big movement happening right now with family reunification, just in orphanages in general. Um, I'm glad there's a lot of fa family strengthening rather than um, like orphanage promoting yeah. um, happening globally. Um, I, I hope it can pick up speed and, and really take, take over. And I hope that we as Christians can really start to look at what we're doing when we, when we donate our money to orphanages and, and don't really think through why, why did the families bring the children there to begin with? Yeah. Because 81% of children who are in orphanages have one, at least one living family member. What? I didn't know yeah. that. 
81%. That's crazy. That's so, crazy. So so what are the factors? Economic. Right. For the most for the most part it's economic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh w- yeah, one of the things that was a that was a really big learning point for us in our foster and adoption training was the reunification with the family aspect, right? Like I think we we came in very very naive um, obviously that's the point of education and that's why they're sure. training us to, to, sure. to, to grind it out of us. Um, mm-hmm. so you, actually here's a quote from you, uh, that feels relevant. Foster care isn't what I do to sacrificially give of my good self. I was like, Oh, rats. <laughs> it's a system I get involved in with all of my humanity in tow, learning to sacrifice the angel I imagine myself to be. And I was like, thanks a lot, Gina. For <laughs> bursting all of my foster care balloons, uh, when you know, in our in our in our training, they were like, "Yeah, so here's the deal: it is always the goal in every circumstance to return a child to their family if it is safe to do so. That is yes. categorically the point. You yes. are a member of the team to help this family be restored. That is your role. We can't have these Amen. children in our home." You are part of serving this family. So maybe that looks like taking care of their child. Maybe that looks like teaching the parents how to parent. Maybe that looks like mentoring them in their life. You are here to help them. That is all. Mm-hmm. And I was like, at first quite offended because I was yeah, I was like coming from a totally different mindset. And then I was deeply convicted and humbled. And then I was like, this is the gospel. Amen. Preach it. And, and this is a... A government agency who conservative yes. Christians seem to like rag on children's aid all the time because they're going to steal your children because you're homeschooling. And I'm just like, these people are doing the Lord's work. Yes. So that was really yes. eye opening for us. And, and obviously we don't have the boots on the ground experience yet in, in foster care. Uh, looks like March will be when things open right. up for us. But yeah, that's like... That, that families have got to be served and loved on and cared and helped. So, okay, how does, how does Julia explain how Julia ends up in uh, essentially like DSS in North Carolina? When an unaccompanied minor crosses into the United States, they are under the umbrella of um, Department of Health and Human Services. So they move from Department of Homeland Security into Department of Health and Human Services under the agency of ORR, which is Office of Refugee Resettlement. And from that point in time, um, ORR tries to place the child in a home um, as soon as they possibly can. And so typically that home is the least restrictive um, connection that they have to someone who knows someone who knows someone in their family. Um, If it's someone who's actually a member of their family, then that's that's who they'll go to. It might be uh, once or twice removed, but some, someone who's connected. So in Julia's case, she was connected to her stepdad's sister in North Carolina. So she went and lived with them in what's called a sponsorship home, sponsorship family. Um, sponsors don't get any money. And a lot of times they uh, are are struggling themselves. And so that's a whole nother story, um, a whole nother issue of if people who are doing foster care can receive benefits in order to maintain and, and help a child flourish, then sponsor families, I think, should also 
receive the same. Because anytime you're taking a new child into your home, there are costs associated with that. And if you're already struggling financially, then right. those costs those costs can be just completely overwhelming. So like if these sorry, just if these are the people then essentially who are the closest in relation to those who are just coming across the border, then this, these are most likely the lowest tier, bottom of the rung, minimal safety net mm-hmm. folks anyway. Most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, and what happened was during some of this, some of this situation is that previously Office of Refugee Resettlement and ICE did not communicate. So therefore, if someone who becomes a sponsor family is undocumented, um, it's, it's not a big deal. Like ICE is not going to go to their house and then deport them um, and then cause more of an issue. However, there was some kind of MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, that happened between ORR and ICE, I think around February of 2018, like right before um, Zero Tolerance was happening, uh, publicly, that is. And so it started to be that ICE started sharing information, or ORR started sharing information with ICE, which created a, a very huge scare among people who were undocumented, who are also sponsor families. And what ORR does is after 30 days of placement in the home, they make a phone call and that is their checking up on the family, uh, checking up on the child. So they make one phone call. If nobody answers, they're not responsible to do any more follow-ups. It's just one phone call. I don't really understand why or how that works specifically or what would even make them get involved again. But that one phone call after 30 days is all they're responsible for. So at that point in time, the child is now in the hands of the sponsor family, and then whatever happens, happens. In some situations, children have um, a deportation kind of rule on them, so they need to go to court and then kind of follow the proceedings. In Julia's situation, there was no no deportation um, on her, and so she was just in the States for however long. <clears throat> so the plan at that point was just for her to live with her, her stepdad's sister. Indefinitely. Um, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. With, with no legal status. Correct. Like Right. Like, right. What's the end goal of her life? Like, right. from an immigration perspective in the United States? I have no idea. I, I honestly think that there's there was so much um, going on at the time that, and I don't, I don't know a whole lot about this stuff. I just want to, like, forewarn everyone. I am not an expert in these things. So if I'm saying something incorrectly, I'm very sorry. But from my perception, it's that there there's so many um, cases and the the caseworkers were so few that there's just a lot, not a lot of procedure being followed up on. Um, wow. And um, so she was living with her aunt who um, also had another lady. I'm not sure if it was a sister or someone else living with her. So there are two single moms living in a home together. And those two moms each had two children. And those two children, those four children were all school age children. So Julia being five, um, just, you know, young enough, too young to go to to kindergarten at the time, didn't have school to go to, but the moms had to go to work and the kids had to go to school. So Julia stayed home alone. And after um, a couple of different times when Julia left the house, even though she was locked in, she figured out a way to to unlock the door. Five-year-olds, ladies and and gentlemen, five-year-olds. I know. They're amazing. (laughs) She is particularly amazing and very sassy and amazing. Um, And so she was able to, you know, get out of the house and she would go to different neighbors' houses and try to find food and water or something because she said that 
you know, there wasn't food for their, her at the house. And so one time a neighbor saw her kind of meandering around the streets and called the police. And so the police then went and got her and, and took her to, to DSS. So that's, gotcha. so that's how she, that's how up. she, yeah, mm. how she ended up. So, you know, in that particular case, it was a case of neglect, but there's a lot of factors involved in that neglect. And, um, what, what do you do when you don't have, you know, legal status, but you need to work and your kids need to go to school and you can't hire a babysitter. What do you do with a child who just suddenly becomes your responsibility? Um, it's a really challenging situation to be in for everyone involved. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't want you to give away all the juicy narrative because <laughs> guys, you seriously need to get Gina's book and read it. If you are a parent, if you are a interested in foster care, if you are uh American and interested in understanding what's happening in your country, if you are a human being who cares about the plight of other human beings. There's a great many scenarios where you will find something of great <laughs> value in, in Gina's story. As true story. I mean, and, and I say story, that doesn't, you know. But could you maybe tell us a bit about the circumstances? Why, you know, why Julia ends up in the States? Why the journey to America? Why Lupe takes the risk? Like, cause I think I certainly wasn't ignorant to that. But it was helpful to really see the sequence of first-person reality that she's that forces her to make an impossible decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in Lupe's situation, she um, from the time she was thirteen, she had been working and taking care of her grandparents. So she lived with her grandparents um, m- most of her life, in fact. But from the time she was thirteen, she was in charge of the household and in charge of having enough funds to, to take care of her grandpa- grandparents. Um, and so, you know, at the time the story takes place, she's, <clears throat> excuse my voice today. Um, she's 34 and, you know, still taking care of grandparents. And on top of that, she has, uh, she has four children. So there are, uh, six dependents on her specifically and only and in a place where, it's difficult for her to find a job and keep a job. And the life that her father taught her um, was a life of selling drugs. And she tried to stop doing that. I'll just interrupt briefly to thank my patrons. I've got 48 patrons who support this podcast and, and all of my work every month. You wonderful people make this possible, make this podcast possible, make all of my writing and Instagram and my videos possible. So I'm so, so thankful for you. I do not take any of you for granted. Hopefully those of you who I sent thank you cards to last month received those. Thank you so much. I do my best to write handwritten messages to everybody who gives $10 or more a month. So if you would like a handwritten message from me, perhaps a little word of encouragement, uh, then head to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. I'm I'm actually trying to get 300 patrons. Uh, If you're in a position to give, anything helps. $3 a month is get you started. Patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. And you can help me keep doing this work and bringing voices to you like Gina's. Uh, So thank you so much. God bless you guys. So when um, she, growing up, she, that's what she was taught to do. So that's how she made money. And then she walked away from it because she knew it wasn't good. And then came back to it some because of different issues that her father had. And so, you know, trying to make an honest living 
in a small town in Honduras as as a single woman is is a big challenge. <laughs> and um, so on top of that, she also had done a couple of situations where she would go like live in a different place in Honduras, get a good job, send money back to the home so that they could survive. And um, her grandfather had started to get sick. And so a lot of her savings went to medicine and doctor's bills that he needed um, in order to, to be well. Um, and then the funding kind of ran out. And so she was kind of at a crossroads and was trying to figure out what to do. And so her decision to come to the States was specifically economic. Uh, she was not fleeing violence. She was um, making a, a decision to find a job for a small small amount of time that would pay for her grandfather's expensive medicine. And so that's what she did. And she brought her her youngest child, which is her only girl. She brought her with her and made the journey, very difficult journey, um, through Mexico to the to the border, and was then separated from her her daughter and her daughter's stepdad, um, and suffered under the, the smugglers, um, will, I guess I could say, um, for a long time and had to escape. So while her daughter was crossing the border, she was dealing with tons of tragedy. And by the time she had returned to Honduras, um, Julia had then entered our house. So it was right about the same time when that happened. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very difficult decision for her. It's not something that she wanted to do. She certainly didn't want to leave her children, her other children. And, um, just feeling, you know, the, the weight of needing to take care of, uh, these two people who in a lot of ways gave her life because she was not raised by her mom and she really kind of wasn't raised by her dad either. Um, so they were her parental figures and, this was a this was an economic choice, but it was also a choice to keep the family together and to to try to to make the family better. Yeah, it occurs to me as as you're laying that out, how much in the wealthy Western life we can take for granted that we would be able to find meaningful work within our locale. Like mm-hmm. we complain if we have to commute, mm-hmm. uh, you know more than an hour or 45 minutes. And if you're living in a small town and you're listening to me, you're going to be like, what? 45 minutes. <laughs> um, but having to, to leave and go and, and work and send money home is an exceedingly common reality for people yes. all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. This, like, I, I know tons of, of people that we've met in our travels who, you know, oh, I'm working on a cruise ship. And my mm-hmm. kids are at home and, and, you know, and I clean the floors of your cabin and fold your towels into cute animals that you take Instagram photos of so that I can send money home to my family in the Philippines or yeah. wherever I'm from. You know, when we were in Finland, there were there was uh, five, maybe five girls, I think girls in my wife's class who'd all come up from Africa for a couple of years to study and mm-hmm. and advance their position 
And a number of them had children and families that they were leaving behind. And this was the best case scenario. This was not abandonment, as you pointed out. This is how to keep the family together. This is how do I honor my father and mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things that maybe I didn't see coming um, myself in all of this was recognizing once you peel back that layer of you know, the zero tolerance policy kind of opened a lot of our eyes up to this. And, uh, you know, a lot of us, especially there was a huge group of evangelical women who were outspoken about how sad this was. But once you kind of open that curtain, you start to see that there's a bunch of other curtains behind that same separated family's door. Um, There's tons of different scenarios in which people are separated from their families. It's not just zero tolerance. And that's not to diminish what zero tolerance was in its horrific disregard for humanity, but also to recognize that, you know, when deportations happen, a lot of times they're separating families. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of people in Honduras that we met who had one or two family members that were living in a different country. And you start to see this stuff. And then we're talking about orphanages all over the world. You start to see that family separation is global. Yeah. It's a global issue. And I <clears throat> I truly do believe that it that it wrenches the heart of God when families are separated. Yeah. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit more? I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, I think even in foster care, right? I mean, like you were saying, the ideal situation in every foster care case is to reunify. And as Christians, we should rejoice in that because we are constantly talking about the family unit and how important the family unit is. And I really, truly do think that any of us, uh, whatever class, whatever race we are, had to come to a situation where we were given an option, either go away from your family for a little bit so that they can be better or stay here now and watch everything fall apart. I think there's no question what we would decide to do. And so for so many evangelicals, um, evangelical Americans to, to say, oh, well, that's what they get because they're crossing illegally just blows my mind. I'm like, this, this is the epitome of the kingdom of darkness that's separating families. This is not what we say that we stand for. This is not the kingdom of light. And we need to be a part of making sure that that kingdom does not advance anymore because it's dehumanizing. It mars the image of God. And we need to be people who fight back against that. Yes. The God who tells stories of the young man who squanders everything. Yes. And whose father takes him home. That's right. Whose father runs down the lane to embrace him. That's right. The savior who, with his parents, flees violence as a baby to a foreign land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you you move on? How do you... And and move on sounds like, like a really privileged thing to be able to do. How how do you cope? How do you carry it? How do you continue to advocate with the with the obvious pain and trauma that that people endure? 
as someone who's informed and as someone who cares? Um, I don't know if I know how to answer that question. It's a good question. I think it's kind of the question of like, where do we, where do we go? Um, when the waters are deep, you know, where do we go when you can't see the other side of the river? Um, and some days it's just treading for another second and hoping that there'll be some little sliver of hope. Um, but not always seeing it. And so I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be unhopeful because I truly do believe in hope and I believe in resilient hope, but I also don't want to be triumphalistic and say that, um, that this is, that this is easy and even recognize like this and me, this is my response, but I am a privileged white woman. Um, and I struggle with it a lot and I don't have to live with it daily. And that, that is its own injustice. Yeah. Right. Um, but I'm friends with someone who I talk to regularly who is struggling with this, um, on a regular basis. And, that like I talk about in the book, you know, sometimes I do want to flip over whatever table God's sitting at. I really, truly do. Sometimes I'm so mad at God. And that's real. Yeah. But I t do take comfort in the fact that I think Christ was falling apart on the cross and he cried out to God. And I take comfort because I can imitate Christ. Yeah. I don't take comfort because I know that God's going to save us all. Like that doesn't always comfort me, to be honest. The only comfort that I have in some of these very deep, dark moments are, is just that, that I know that I'm imitating Christ when I yell, God, why have you forsaken these people? Why? How could you? How could you? And that's, that's the hope that I cling to right now. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, the Psalms are, are full of that, right? How long, yes. oh Lord? How long? Yes. Yeah. You keep in touch with uh, Lupe and Julio? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> so cool. including her brothers they were telling me one of them was telling me today that he's about to play a soccer game he's really excited he's so good at it <laughs> um, so he's he's pumped and how beautiful is posted. that how beautiful is that right that now you have this relationship this beautiful connection with this family yeah you know a bond that you know is so intimate and so unique yeah um yeah. How how can people get them get? How can people do their their part and 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 join join the work that needs to be done? Well, um, there's a lot of different ways. Um, it, to be very honest, it depends on how willing um, people are to get wrapped up in this. Right? There's 
and I don't say that um, demeaningly. I'm not trying to. I do recognize that there are tons of injustices that happen on a regular basis. And so for those who are already super involved in um, racial justice or foster care or, you know, different things like there are places that we are meant to be that God has us and and issues and really the humanity behind the issues that he calls us to be involved in. So if those who are listening to this are interested in being more involved and interested in sacrificially being involved in immigration, um, there are ways to do that. They're, they're listed in the book. They're listed on my website. But also, I think a, a big thing is let's, let's start paying attention to our language. Let's, let's make sure that we're not marring the image of God and other people, um, whether we're talking about immigrants or we're talking about Border Patrol. Um, I have to use sincere restraint and watch myself when I talk about border patrol agents, because it's incredibly and increasingly easy for me to dehumanize them in the way that I believe they dehumanize other people. Yeah. That's the hardest part of the gospel right there. Oh gosh. I often say (laughs) the gospel is terrible and terrific. (laughs) It is both. At the uh, same time. And he comes for the bullied and the bully. Yes. It's terrible when I have to follow it. Yeah. Right? It's terrific when it's easy for me to follow it. But it's terrible when I have to lay down my selfishness. Yeah. Because it feels good to dehumanize other people. It truly does. Yeah. It's powerful. It is. It feels self-righteous. Yeah. Which looks a little bit like righteous. <laughs> yes, Just that enough. is a great point. Yes, <laughs> I'll yes. be tweeting that shortly. That's uh, good. Okay, folks, I'll be putting yeah. in the show notes, uh, you know, the link to to get Gina's book and to learn more about her. Gina, where can people um, follow you? And yeah, I'm most active on Twitter, so you'll find me there, Gina L G E N A L Thomas, um, and then you can just um, find me on my website. That's got all the links, GinaThomas.com. Wonderful. Uh, Gina, I have only one complaint okay. about the book. Okay. Uh, it's conceivably possible that this is from the pre-release only and the final won't be this way, or there's valid reasons. But I, by the end of that story, was desperate for a photo of Lupe and Julia. Oh. Um, the thing is that I'm trying really hard to be mindful of the fact that their lives might still be somewhat in danger and um you can see a little glimpse of some of the video of them reuniting from on my website there's an npr um uh video or story that was done um so you can see a little glimpse of that but their faces are covered up and i try really hard not to not to show them um, but if we ever meet in person someday, I will gladly show you a picture of them. I figured that was likely the reason, but I'm glad to know that that video has been captured. So that's wonderful. Gina, uh, would you pray for us as we wrap up? Sure. Lord in heaven, we thank you that your ways are higher than ours. We thank you that you call us to be human and not anything more. You don't call us to be angels. And so we can honestly come before your throne of grace and we can be true and authentic and carry all of our doubts and all of our humanity with us. And I thank you for that. 
And I pray, God, as you um, continue to move along the border and move in the hearts and minds of those who hold power in this nation, in Mexico, in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, God, that you would give the leaders wisdom, but most importantly, God, you would give them an awareness of the human beings and the human lives that their decisions affect on a regular basis. And God, as we, your people, rise to meet the kingdom of darkness, give us strength, give us wisdom, help us to see the kingdom of darkness within us and the kingdom of light that is there also. Help us to be real with each other. Give us grace for the journey. Thank you that you are a God above our doubts, not afraid of our humanity, and aware of all the injustices that happen in this world. Make us more aware. Make us more equipped to do your good work and bring shalom on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. And that was Gina Thomas. I have never been so overcome with emotion while recording an interview or uh, while editing it, actually. Today, as I sat here just trimming this up and preparing it for all of you, I I cried and cried. And that is... uh, I'm so thankful that Gina would uh, let down her guard and would be vulnerable and open with us It was a real gift to me, and I hope it was a gift to you. Go back and listen to it again. Share it with a friend. Head to GinaThomas.com, G-E-N-A, Thomas.com, to uh, learn more about her or go follow her, Gina L. Thomas, on Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere. Go check out the show notes for the link to purchase her book, Separated by the Border. It's available on Amazon. You can pre-order right now, and it releases in just a few days. So go and support her work. Go and educate yourself. Go and share this with a friend so other people can learn just about the plight of our human brothers and sisters. Uh, Obviously, we're focusing on the U.S. border in this, but these kinds of situations are happening all over the world. Uh, Right now, obviously, there is major uh, trauma and violence being done to the Kurdish people uh, in Turkey. And so... This, this kind of thing is happening, has been happening forever, continues to happen. But as Gina said, it is, it is not the heart of God. And so we can pray, we can act, we can be informed, we can spread the word, and we can go and travel, even in some cases, and, and serve and help. Be Jesus, but also encounter Jesus in the other. So thank you so much for listening, my friends. Have a wonderful day. God bless you all.